0: This book, for example, how you find people lining up on different sides of these questions. Was Esther a brave woman of color? Was she a naive woman manipulated by a man who was not her husband? Was she a godly woman of faith, as numerous articles uh, indicate? Or was she? um... Was she a, uh, an unbeliever who used her beauty to advance her own humanistic plants, as uh, many people just as aggressively contend? Did she freely apply to the wife of this king uh, to enter into his harem, or was she kidnapped? Was this a shotgun marriage? Did God providentially enable her to keep the Jewish food laws, like uh, many rabbis uh, contend, contended, or... Um, Uh, Was she totally uncaring about God's laws on food and clothing and marriage and sexual issues? And it's just not controversy around Esther. There's controversy around uh, the uh, life of Mordecai as well. Several authors call Mordecai a godly prophet, and that's the position that I hold to. Uh, While other very sound conservative expositors believe that he was not even a believer, or if he was a believer, he was definitely a grossly compromised believer. One author said, notice that Mordecai continually compromised his faith in God in many areas. Also notice that they refer to each other by their Persian names throughout the book of Esther. That tells us that these Jewish people had become entrenched into the culture in which they were captive. Mordecai was opportunistic and ambitious. Now that author agrees with me that uh, the Ahasuerus of this passage was uh, Darius, but she totally disagrees with my assessment of the character of Esther and Mordecai and there are a number of good people who do So I thought what I was going to do before I even move any further in this book I wanted to do a biography of the life of Mordecai for my sermon this morning So all we're going to cover is Mordecai's uh, life. In fact, we're not even going to cover all of his life We're going to get up to chapter 2 is about where we're going to get on this and then we won't continue next week on that. We'll continue on in chapter two and looking at uh, some other uh, details. And even if you don't agree with me, at least it'll help you to see where I'm coming from on this and be able to sort through some of the issues. Now, if you want all of the arguments as to why Mordecai was a bad guy and my responses to it, I've got a 14-page paper in my briefcase. And uh, probably about a third of the paper is uh, footnotes. and uh, uh, it's something that you can pursue on your own. One of the things I've wanted to do is not bog the sermons down with too much detail, okay? So I'm writing papers, and if you're skeptical or you need to be further convinced, you can read the paper and, um, and pursue that on your own. But anyway, in terms of dealing with this, this issue, I don't think there's probably a better place to start than this chapter uh, when we look at uh, uh, his life. And what I want to do is I want to summarize this is just kind of a time chart here that you can as I go through the entire sermon you can be seeing where things are happening but I want to summarize the conclusions of several papers and I'm just going to be amalgamating their arguments as to why they were critical of the character of Mordecai and Esther. It's alleged by some evangelicals that Mordecai was not even a believer or if he was a believer he was a grossly compromised believer in many, many ways. His character and his actions are alleged to be completely incompatible with a prophetic calling of God. Um, It's alleged uh, by some commentators that his name refers to the Babylonian uh, God Marduk and that he calls his uh, daughter Hadassah. That was her Hebrew name. He calls her Esther so that both of them will be able to advance in the court of uh, this king, climb up the ladder of success. Now, I hope to explain a little bit that Esther's name is Persian, not Babylonian. But anyway, rather than protecting her life and caring for her, he arranged for a marriage between her and uh, this king, despite the fact that this guy was a pagan, he was a lecher, and he was a totally unworthy, uh, an unworthy husband. Now, he further sins against uh, his uh, daughter by... uh, Threatening her in a menacing way you can just put it down somewhere there and I want you to turn with me to chapter 4 We'll just give a, a couple of examples of what they appeal to chapter 4 verse 13 it Says in Mordecai I told them to answer Esther Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews and They say this is a menacing threat if she doesn't cooperate and his desperation he's trying to use her and they say the threat's even more pronounced in verse 14. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. So they say, here's a situation. They're delivered at another time, so there's no more need for any violence, but he's threatening violence to her and to her family if he does not cooperate uh, in, this time of, um, in this time of desperation. Uh, These authors portray Mordecai as having willingly given his daughter to this pagan in exchange for a position in the government. And throughout the story, they portray Mordecai as a money-grubbing man who is intent on personal success at the expense of his daughter's well-being. Now, several authors accuse Mordecai of jeopardizing the entire nation through disobedience to the king's, they say, very legitimate command to bow down to Haman. And so they say because of his obstinacy, he put the entire nation into jeopardy. So he was a bad guy for failing to bow down. And uh, today we're not going to answer that particular argument. We're going to wait until chapter 4 for that. But going on, furthermore, they allege that there is no evidence that he even brought Esther up in the faith because she is just as compromised as he is. She was a willing accomplice who far from resisting the advances of this king must have fully and enjoyably cooperated sexually otherwise how could she have pleased this lecher on a one-night stand they claim that both mordecai and esther hide their faith and they violate god's clothing laws by dressing as persians they sin against god by refusing to return to israel when god had commanded them to return to israel and Esther and Mordecai make absolutely no mention of God throughout the narrative. In addition, it's alleged that Esther violates God's food laws, sexual taboos, his commands to pray toward Jerusalem, all of which laws would have revealed her faith. But Mordecai had specifically commanded her, they say, not to reveal her faith. And God says, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. And so both of them were very, very compromised. In, in the way in which they, uh, they lived. It would all militate. They, some people say they're deists at best, atheists at worst, though I think most of the critics said they were just compromised uh, believers. In any case, it would militate against my position that uh, Mordecai was a, a godly prophet who wrote this book. And so this book uh, had different purposes, but one of the purposes, they would say, was as a, as a, uh, a prophetic announcement against intermarriage with pagans like Esther had engaged in and was uh, going on in the land of of Palestine and so there's some plausible arguments that they give for a totally different perspective than what what I am going to be presenting to you today and though I see that as a plausible argument I completely reject it and I want to explain why The author of this book refers to the writings of Mordecai seven times in chapter 9, and the way in which he refers to those writings indicates to me only two possibilities. Either uh, Mordecai was uh, a prophet imposing God's law, or he was an ungodly tyrant who was imposing his own laws and treating them as being equal to God's laws. I, I don't see any other options in between. It's one of those two positions. Now, I do not believe that Purim was a man-made feast. It's the only thing in this book that prophetically foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus said that all the scriptures speak of him. And so there's something in this book that shows forth the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 3 verse 23 says, all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. Now, If the Feast of Purim does prophetically foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ as I argue in my paper That means that Mordecai was a prophet because he imposed he imposed the Feast of Purim um, What would it be 24 years if you look over on the right hand side year 26 of Darius um, chapter 10 of Esther uh, occurs after Darius dies, because it, records, it says, he refers to all of the acts which are recorded of uh, this king Ahasuerus. So sometime after that, this book was written. So the Feast of Purim is imposed by Mordecai long before the book, and the book agrees that the Feast of Purim should be followed through. Now, I don't think uh, that uh, Purim was the only inspired... Uh, Writings that Mordecai gave to encourage the people the Jewish encyclopedia says But all the rabbis agree that Mordecai was a prophet and that he prophesied in the second year of Darius Now anytime you could get all the ancient Rabbis to agree on anything you've got something rather remarkable going on but in the same article in the encyclopedia it claims that the Hallel Psalms were early on ascribed to Mordecai and were written after uh, the events of uh, of uh, chapter 8 and so already in the time of chapter 1, that would be the the third year of uh, Darius, even before that they said that he was prophesying to God's people. Now there's a lot of external evidence for that but we don't need to look at external evidence. I I deal with some of that in my paper. The scripture testifies to itself and I want to look at some of the internal evidence that The writings that are referred to over and over again in chapter 9 of Mordecai had the character of scripture about it. Um, It says Mordecai wrote these things and in verse 32 he says they were written in the book. And there's debate on what exactly that book is. I want to give arguments as to why we should treat it as uh, scripture. Now first, his writings were absolute in terms of authority. They bound the conscience in ways that only God's law. Can Bind the conscience Uh, Remember that the only authority I have as a pastor is the authority of God's Word, right? Uh, It's tyranny of a pastor if he begins to impose authority that does not come from the word and that's true of magistrates as well So again, is it is it uh, the authority pure authority of man? That's tyrannical or is it the authority of God that is given now? I want you to just listen to these descriptions I'm just going to quote a whole bunch of words and a whole bunch of phrases from chapter 9 and as you listen I want you to think what kind of authority do these words convey? Here's the first word establish should Established and imposed it without fail. They should celebrate these two days every year written instructions Prescribed time should be remembered and kept should not fail to be observed with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time. And by the way, I think it took words of Shalom and truth to be able to confirm that Purim was going to be established because people would not have accepted it. Otherwise, I don't think, but anyway, uh, going on, prescribed decreed for themselves and their descendants, Decree confirmed these matters of Purim. and It was written in the book Now it's clear from chapters 9 and 10. This is not a Persian law that affects the whole Empire of Persia This was a Jewish law that was only written to Jews and to converts to Judaism We'll see a little bit later on that it was imposed upon them as well. It was a church law and um that law, it says, could not be changed. The, the phrase without fail that occurs two times, the Hebrew, Walo uh, yaavor the every time that that occurs in the scripture, either is a reference to God's decrees which are unchangeable, like in Ezekiel 48, 14, Psalm 148, 6, Job 14, 5, or, interestingly, to the tyranny of the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which could never be changed. Okay, so Either of those in terms of of context could be legitimate interpretations. He's just taking over the authority of the laws in the Median Persians. There's one problem though. The author of this book says that the words of Mordecai were words of peace and truth. And so he rules out the idea that it's someone pretending to be God or taking the authority of God uh, unnaturally. and indicates that they have the character of divine authority. It's absolute authority. Now, secondly, they didn't just, it's not just absolute authority, but it's universal jurisdiction that these words had over the Jews. It didn't matter where they were and what generation they were. It had universal jurisdiction. Listen to these phrases. Sent letters to all the Jews, verse 20, in all the provinces, both near and far, established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who should join them so even the gentiles who joined them and became jews it was imposed upon them as well kept throughout every generation every family every province and every city that in these days that these days of purim should not fail to be observed among the jews verse 28 sent letters to all the jews and so it was applied in a universal fashion then the third characteristic that it shares with scripture Is that it has an eternal bearing this book says that his laws didn't just apply to his generation it was to be celebrated yearly verse 21 to be celebrated quote without fail every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time it was a day of remembrance that had to be quote kept throughout every generation every family every province and every city that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. And again, I already mentioned that it was a law that could not be changed and had to be done without fail. Now, who but God, or tyrants pretending to be God, could make such a transcendent law? Now, I've just given you one page out of the 14 pages that I used to prove that Mordecai was the prophet who wrote this book, but I hope it's whetted your appetite enough that uh, you'll do some further research if you have any questions on that. But people say, but still, what about the objections that evangelicals have brought up about their character? Well, some of those objections may be true. I mean, we have had prophets in the past, like David, who committed adultery and murder. We've had prophets like uh, like Solomon, who uh, committed uh, sexual sins of polygamy and intermarriage with pagans. Uh, We have um, examples like Abraham, who did not resist, When Pharaoh and later on when Abimelech took his wife, wasn't even his daughter, took his wife into his harem Which is a gross thing. So I think you can see I don't need to defend their character in order for Mordecai to be a prophet But I feel compelled to do so because how we view Mordecai and Esther is going to profoundly affect How we understand the book as a whole how we're going to interpret it. So let me address the issue of names A survey of the journal literature and there's a ton of journal literature out there on the book of esther shows that there continues to be great debate on the meaning of either name Uh, some suggestions that have been given are that esther uh, means the goddess ishtar that's babylonian or the word star that's persian or myrtle tree that's old persian or a hebrew word meaning i am hiding so there's four plausible definitions Suggestions for the meaning of Mordecai are worshiper of Marduk, warrior, uh, the Hebrew for a little man, and the Aramaic for a pure myrrh. Uh, now, Yehu- uh, Ye- Yehuda argues very cogently, I believe, that Esther is simply the old Persian form of the medic Astra. Astra equals Esther, and Astra meant myrtle. Now that makes perfect sense if you look at chapter two, verse seven, where he says, and Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther. And what Yehuda says is that phrase, that is, means that Esther and and um, Hadassah are the same name in two different languages. He's defining one with the other, they're equivalent uh, in his mind. And so that could be an argument that there was maybe no pagan influence whatsoever. And similar uh, debate exists on the name of Mordecai and I'm not going to go into that But let's just assume for the sake of argument these names do mean Ishtar and Marduk It still does not prove a thing because Daniel Shadrach Meshach and Abednego all had names of pagan gods uh, Which meant such things as may Bel protect his life the command of Aku and servant of Nebo and Nebuchadnezzar was the one who gave them those names They may have preferred their Hebrew names, but to even be able to function in that court, they had to be able to work with those names. And interestingly, Scripture calls them by those names. Only Daniel's got reverted back from Belteshazzar into Daniel, but all of the others throughout were called by their pagan names. And so we would say there is no compromise in their lives. The Scripture indicates that very clearly. Why would there have to be here? Secondly, since Darius was a monotheistic Zoroastrian... Uh, monotheist is a person who believes there is only one God since he was a monotheistic Zoroastrian it is extremely unlikely that he or Mordecai would have changed Esther's name to uh, the name of another goddess nor would Mordecai have scored any points with Darius by trying to use you know names of gods and goddesses that Darius doesn't even believe in doesn't even worship uh, that doesn't that argument just does not make sense And so if the names are Ishtar and Marduk, it was for some other purpose. It was not for the purpose of gaining ascendancy in this court. Now on the issue of moral character, most of the arguments that are made pro and con are pure conjecture. Nothing but conjecture. You know, some of the Jews, (laughs) they have all kinds of stories that they've added to the book of Esther to try to make Esther and Mordecai look good. And uh, most scholars nowadays say you know it's just wishful thinking and they may be right on that it may just be uh, maybe wishful thinking we don't know if uh, the stories are true or not but um, neither can we say that there is strong evidence that Esther was not kidnapped the text nowhere says that Mordecai gave her to the king nor that he got anything out of going to that giving her to the king if the author really was trying to critique um, Intermarriage with pagans. I think there would have been opportunity to very strongly indicate that that was the case now the case Now critics will look at verse 19 and they will say okay previous to verse 19 She becomes queen. So immediately there is some benefit that Mordecai has it says when virgins were gathered together a second time Mordecai sat within the king's gate Okay, he's been elevated as a result of this exchange that went on but it doesn't say he began to sit at uh, that gate here. Uh, if you look at verse 5, it says that um, in Shushan the citadel, and if you look in the margin, the citadel is the palace. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. So he was already in the palace. He was advanced, you know, already uh, long before Esther became a queen. Now the objection comes is that verse 17 says that Esther won the king's heart through her sexual f- favors that night. And to please this man, who must have been sated with pleasure, would have been hard to please him, they say, would have taken quite some doing. And so she must have been a willing participant in his deviancy. Now, I do not want to overreact by painting Mordecai and her as more saintly than they are. Uh, after all, we've mentioned there are other prophets who have compromised in different ways uh, Abraham, David, uh, Solomon. But my point is that we ought not to read into the passage more than is there notice that Esther 2 verse 8 Says so it was when the king's command and decree were heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of hegei that Esther also was taken to the king's palace Now that is proved that she was kidnapped because exactly the same word is used of a husband taking a wife, right? So, it doesn't prove anything there, but in terms of the tense of the verb, there's enough there that a respected scholar like D.J. Kleins says, the narrator effortlessly forecloses any criticism of Mordecai. The three passive verbs were heard, were gathered, and was taken portray an irresistible series of events. And I've got other commentators that, that believe the, the same thing about that. So he's saying there was nothing they could do to resist Darius on this and that's plausible. Am I guaranteeing it's right? No, (laughs) I can't guarantee that that is right, but it's plausible. There are Kings who did that all the time in the ancient world In fact, I've already given you illustrations of two Kings Pharaoh and Abimelech that did that with with um, um, What is Abraham's wife's name? Sarah (laughs) and he was married to her. Okay, and so it's perfectly plausible that that could be the case. Now, several authors have pointed out that numerous phrases, and this is to substantiate this, numerous phrases have been borrowed from the story of Joseph in describing this story here. And uh, very, very strong literary parallels. Sometimes it's almost word for word in a phrase that's taken, both from the Daniel as well as from the Joseph stories. And it's so strong that some of these commentators say the author of this book wants to draw our attention to the Joseph story and the Daniel story, and maybe one of the reasons would be so that we would conclude that just as they were taken against their will, that Esther was taken against uh, against her will. And you know, I think there is um, there is a, a neat comfort that we can get from all three of those stories. I do not think that we should justify the abuse that the brothers gave to Joseph uh, or that Egypt gave to Joseph just because all things worked together for their good. He went through pain and tears and agony and suffering uh, when he was down in Egypt. And I believe that God used those things to mold Joseph's character to make him the man who was fit for the spot that he was going to be occupying. I think God was doing the same with Esther. In this in this story I believe that she probably did go through pain and tears and agony uh, of soul over this and yet God was sovereignly in total control of all of that some people say you cannot say that rape and other things like that are things that God is in sovereign control over and yet we have to say yes he is he is he absolutely is Kay Arthur has a wonderful discussion of this in her book or maybe it's in the tapes that accompany the book on um, Lord, heal my hurts. And as only she can do, uh, she points to examples of people who have suffered abuse in childhood or rape and other traumas that they have faced. And yet, as they have matured in Christ, realizing that God even used those things. God's not the author of sin, and yet God can overrule every detail of the lives that come uh, things that happen to people so that it will be for the good of his people now some might object how is it then that she pleased him so much we're not told we're not told maybe he was tired of compliant women we're simply not told nor are we told that darius was a sexual deviant as many assume all we know about darius's sexual practices is he liked polygamy and he liked them one at a time that's all we know Sacred or secular, that's all we know about Darius. We cannot say that he was a polygamist, only an ungodly, uh, I mean a pervert, only an ungodly polygamist. In verse 17, the inspired text says, the king loved her, not that he abused her. It says he loved her, okay? It says she obtained grace and favor in his sight, not that she allured him or granted him favors. The text says she was a virgin, not a pervert. Her criteria for being selected was her beauty, not her experience in the bed. Okay, and I think people have read far too much into the text on, on this issue. And furthermore, the text implies that she and Mordecai were elevated to a position of favor. They were graced by the Lord. They were favored by the Lord. It seems that the Lord favors them more than some of these critics do. And if God's favor and grace rested upon them, I think we need to assume the best about them until the worst can be proven. And I don't think the author's intent was even to discuss what their motives were. Motives may have been impure, they may not have been impure. Now, here's an application that I want to make. It is very, very tempting for us to be quick to jump to conclusions and to judge people when we see evidence going in a certain direction. I remember when I was first being trained in counseling. A story that was uh, given of a boy that had um, taken something off of the shelf in a store and had walked out with it, and somebody accosted him for shoplifting. He said, I didn't shoplift. He said, Oh, yeah, right, sure. The boss gave this to you and took him back to the boss and said, Yeah, he had done a favor for me, and I told him he could take that off the shelf as payment. Now, think what would have happened if this guy had not confronted the individual. All of that time, he would have been thinking this person was a shoplifter. Why? Because there was evidence that pointed in that direction. There have been times when I have misinterpreted Kathy, and if I had taken the time to ask some questions, I would have avoided total misunderstanding, but there was evidence that seemed to go in a certain direction. I jumped on that evidence and judged her over that. Well, afterwards, I realized, okay, there's evidence that points in another direction as well, right? And we can do this so frequently. You know, maybe somebody does not keep the Sabbath quite like we keep it, and we might interpret them as if they are breaking God's law when there may be a very legitimate reason for what they're doing or those people might judge us because we have different practices on the Sabbath there's many ways in which we can faultily judge and I think one of the one of the stories that illustrates this so well is in the book of Joshua when the two tribes that are on the other side of the river they build an altar there And Joshua finds out about it, and he is incensed. And he's going to take his whole army, and he's going to march over there and destroy those two tribes because he thinks that they have set up an alternate temple, alternate altar, alternate sacrifices. When he he finds out what the situation is, this is a reminder we must always go to Jerusalem. He says, Wow, all of this, we're going to destroy this people because of misinterpreted motives and actions and uh, it it could have so easily been avoided. And so uh, I think this is a great illustration of how reading between the lines can be so dangerous. There are good men and women commentators who have read between the lines and come to totally opposite conclusions. And there's evidence that favor is going in different directions on that. Do you get the point on that that I'm making? Okay, let's let's deal with some other criticisms and then we'll move on. In verse 20 it says, <clears throat> now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her oh the K, the critics say that because faith and nationality are so tightly bound up in the Old Testament to fail to reveal her family and people is by very definition to deny her faith or at least to hide her faith to be ashamed of her faith I want you to notice several things here though T- turn with me to chapter 8 and verse 17 it says and in every province and city wherever the king's command and decree came the Jews had joy and Gladness a feast and a holiday Then many of the people of the land became Jews Because fear of the Jews fell upon them now that verse indicates that the author of this book does not see Jewishness as being ethnic he sees it as being religious When they became Jews, it's the same thing as saying, you know, somebody came and became Christians. And so how the author uses the term Jew, I think we need to be sensitive to. The author is saying there is an ethnicity question, but the Jewishness question is religious. Even Gentiles can become Jews if they embrace the God of Israel. And I want you to notice, um, uh, secondly, that nowhere in chapter 2 does it say that she was asked to deny her faith. We have to make a distinction. She was asked to not reveal her people or her kindred. Now, there's different interpretations that people could make of that. And uh, I keep running across uh, new stuff even this morning. I just wrote in the margin. Uh, uh, one interpretation that is given was that people already knew that Mordecai was a Jew, and they assumed that she was his daughter. And what Mordecai is warning her about is, hey, when you get into that into that palace, don't be thinking to yourself, I'm with royalty, I'll let everybody know that I'm a descendant of royalty. Because you're a descendant of King Saul. And if Haman or anybody that he has uh contacts with finds out you're a descendant of of uh, your great 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 granddaddy who was trying to wipe out all of the ancestors of Haman you might be in real trouble okay so that would be one interpretation don't reveal what your ancestry is your people and kindred because that could get you in trouble nobody knows I'm a descendant of Saul and nobody knows you're a descendant of Saul let's, let's keep it that way you can practice your religion but don't reveal that that's one interpretation another is now just don't reveal the fact that that you are an Israelite. Uh, you can practice your religion, but as far as your ethnic, ethnicity, uh, don't, uh, don't go that way. If she was forcibly taken from him, this may have been a wise move because you look at the spies who went into the land of Canaan, the faithful spies, do you think that they revealed their ethnicity to the, <laughs> to the Gentiles they were going and talking with as they were spying? I don't think so. And yet the text says they were faithful to the Lord. And this is just as hostile a situation as they were in if she was kidnapped uh, from her home. And Mordecai perhaps was hoping that the Lord might in some way bring deliverance to her. Or maybe a third alternative is that uh, he knows people are getting ticked off with him and he doesn't want her, everybody knowing that she's associated with him. There's three possible interpretations. Now, granted, if it was a situation where she wasn't revealing that she was an Israelite, it would have been much more difficult for her to hide her ethnicity because of how um, it, it is tied up with, uh, with some of God's laws. Uh, critics insist, for example, she had to compromise God's dietary laws to remain unknown as a, a Jew. Uh, But you know what? I don't know that that's the case because Darius did not sacrifice his food to the idols He didn't believe in idols. He was a Zoroastrian. By the way, there are many people who believe Zoroastrianism was a uh, a deviation from uh, from Judaism Um, And that's where the monotheism came from but again, it's an argument from silence authors who have cited the language uh, where he borrows from Joseph and the Daniel stories say that it may have been so that we will assume that uh, that she uh, got favors just like they did and it's not a total assumption take a look at verse 9 now the young woman pleased him and she obtained his favor so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance and you look in commentaries uh, the allowance is food allowance um, and uh, NIV translates it as special food so she was granted special favors when it came to food uh, according to at least one interpretation uh, of the text. Perhaps like Daniel and Joseph, she dressed according to the custom of the Babylonians. We're just not told what she ate and what she wore. Now interestingly, one author, A.B. Lever, claims Darius had by this time become a Christian. And so all of this argument is moot anyway. I'm kind of skeptical, uh, but if you look at Ezra chapter 6. I think it's Ezra 6, he may, yeah, it is Ezra chapter 6, he might be able to make a good case for that because that's an incredibly strong testimony that is given when he uh, establishes the temple, but I tend to be skeptical anyway. Um, As to Mordecai's lack of concern for Esther, his preoccupation Mm -hmm. with self-advancement, you can note the following. Verse 5 shows he already was advanced. Secondly verse 11 says quite the opposite about his being opportunistic It says every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her Uh, So he didn't know what was going on if he had arranged it He would have known he was trying to find out and he was very worried He was pacing back and forth and he was looking for her quote-unquote welfare and secondly His willingness to even die rather than bow down to Haman, to me, does not look like the character of a person who's opportunistic. And so, and throughout the story, we see a person who's concerned for the welfare of Israel as a whole. Now, if you want more details, uh, you're going to have to look at the paper, which goes into boring detail, probably more boring than we've been this morning. But I want to start with a brief overview, giving a positive reconstruction of his life. We're just going to take for granted then my position here and we're going to give a reconstruction. Go back as far as we can. Verse 6 looks at his childhood, and you can cross out the word kish there. Uh, We saw two weeks ago virtually no translations put kish in there. It's literally who, and the most natural reading, in fact, it's a very forced reading to put kish in there. The most natural antecedent for who is Mordecai. So beginning at verse 5. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei. Shimei was, according to the rabbinic uh, uh, interpretations, was the Shimei who cursed David. Remember, he went along the road when David was leaving. And uh, Joab and his brother want to knock off his head, kill him. And David rebuked them and said, no, the Lord commanded him to curse. Now think, if David had not had that self-restraint, there would be no story of Esther and Mordecai God's control of the details as we go through this chat this book you're going to see are incredible there are no details that God could not have controlled. but anyway he says the son of uh, Shimei the son of Kish and Kish was the father of Saul and so the main point here is that he, he was of royal blood and Esther would have been of royal blood as well Anyway, it says he was a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Just in terms of time frame, it's not the first uh, exile in 605, it's the second one over in 597 up there on the, uh, on, on the chart. And um, this that means that it was 82 years earlier that he was taken captive. Or if you want to count from chapter 1, it's 78 years earlier. You can see under a, uh, BC 520, just a little bit to the left of it, 522, that would be seven, 788. I mean, 78 is, uh, was his age. Now, Jeremiah 24 says that the Israelites who were left in the land, they were the bad figs. They were the bad ones that he was just going to let rot. The ones who were carried into exile were the good figs, and he had a plan for them. And part of his plan was transformation of the empire. We're going to be looking in future sermons at some of the prophets uh, saying that multitudes of Jews would come to a sa- I mean, of Gentiles would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord, and the influence that they would have there. But I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Uh, He commanded in this chapter the Jews to settle down, get jobs, raise families, seek the, uh, the peace of the city where they're at. And so as soon as Mordecai is sent into exile, he and his parents are given these instructions. Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them plant gardens and eat their fruit take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your Sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished and seek The peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it for in its peace You will have peace and you see the Jews doing that they got into all kinds of influential positions You see that with Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah. They did not get into a ghetto an escape from the world they were penetrating into every area of society just as we need to infiltrate into every level of society they were everywhere god's hand was upon them and i think this is a strategy christians need to follow today rather than bailing out of society and being pessimistic we need to get into the society we need to be the best businessmen we need to be the best teachers the best politicians the best of everything and is it hard yes it is very hard to be the best as a Christian out there and yet Daniel and I think the book of Esther gives us all kinds of advice on how we can do it successfully in a way that honors in a way that honors the Lord and I highly highly recommend John Eidsmo's tapes on Daniel and politics but in any case we should not be escapist now just like Daniel was elevated to a position of influence and power through the administration of what is six or seven kings Uh, Spanning from Nebuchadnezzar all the way to Cyrus Mordecai gets elevated to a position of influence as well If you play politics You likely will only serve under one administration if you're a statesman who serves You may be hired by multiple administrations just like they were now if you turn with me to Ezra chapter 2 and verse 2 you'll see that God stirred up the heart of Mordecai to return to Jerusalem 22 or 23 years earlier Ezra chapter 2 <clears throat> Now he would have been if you look on the chart up there He would have been about 59 or 60 years old at the first return which was 538 slash 537 BC, but Ezra 2 verse 2 it says those who came with Zerubbabel were Joshua Nehemiah Sariah Re'aliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigval, Rehum, and Ba'ana. Now notice the names of Mordecai and Nehemiah. And they were listed amongst the national leaders of, of Israel. He goes on to talk about the provincial leaders in verses 3 and following. But these are the feds, okay? These are the guys who are, who are up there. They were known by everybody. These were very famous men. And to me, it's, it's, it's not likely that there are two Nehemiahs who are in such prominent positions of authority, one 90 years later and uh, one at this time. But anyway, he gives the name uh, Nehemiah and and Mordecai. So Mordecai, 23 years before, was already in a position of influence. The uh, Jewish rabbi, ancient rabbis say that he was a ruler in in, in the Sanhedrin. And perhaps like Nehemiah, he got permission to temporarily return to Israel and then was recalled. You gotta remember that Nehemiah uh, had three or four trips and he had to get permission each time Now turn next to Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 7 and His name appears here as well Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 7 those who came with Zerubbabel were Joshua, Nehemiah Azariah Rahmiah Nahamiah. Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvai, Nehum, and Ba'anah. So once again, he's a, 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 he gives the, his name in the list of national leaders. Now the first thing that this shows to me is commitment on the part of Mordecai. It would have been so easy for Mordecai to say, man, do I want to go through the, the hassle of rebuilding a state in Israel? Do I want to go through the risks of all the travel and everything it's comfortable here in persia i've got it made but no he does go back to israel because god's people and god's purposes and god's kingdom was uppermost on his heart and throughout his life god's people were near to his heart and esther it says that throughout his life he sought the good of his people and spoke peace to his countrymen and to me this stands as a tremendous challenge to us That we need to have a vision that goes beyond the four walls of this church Beyond this city beyond this nation We need to be concerned for the welfare of God's people in Mongolia and China Wherever they may be found our prayers need to be worldwide our vision needs to be as broad as God's vision is Now keeping in mind the revised chronology that we developed in the first sermon this means that Ezra Nehemiah and Mordecai all were living during the reign of Darius. Modern chronologists disagree with that. Uh, they deny that, but this means that Ezra, Nehemiah, and Mordecai all came up here under under the first return, 538 537 BC. Now, here's what most chronologists say. They say there's no way. Uh, they say that uh, Ezra doesn't come until 458 BC. That's off the map, you know, over on the right hand side and uh, that nehemiah doesn't come till 444 bc and so then they've got a problem because in any way and uh, it's just it's hard to follow why don't you turn with me to nehemiah chapter 12. establishment chronology as i say says that nehemiah ezra doesn't come for another 57 years nehemiah doesn't come for another 71 years that's from darius year 7. okay nehemiah doesn't come for 94 years from the, uh, from the first return. According to their, according to their view. Now to me and to many biblical chronologists like Usher and Anstey and Jones and others, this is absolutely inconceivable and it's inconceivable for a number of reasons. Number one, Daniel nine prophesies that within 49 years, 49 years of Cyrus's decree, that's 49 years of 538 BC. The temple, Jerusalem, and the walls would be rebuilt. Now, on on biblical chronology, that fits perfectly. On current establishment chronology, it doesn't get built for 94, I think it's 94 years. Yes, 94 years before it's built. Now, they say it's impossible for these three to be contemporaries living under Darius, let alone under Cyrus. But look at Nehemiah chapter 12 and uh, look at verse 1. Now, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Now, scholars agree. Zerubbabel came, that first return, 538, 537 uh, B.C. But uh, look at verse 13. It mentions Ezra. So it's not just Mordecai and Nehemiah who come then. Ezra comes then too. Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries. Look at verse uh, 26. These lived in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and then the days of Nehemiah the governor, and of Ezra the priest, the scribe. Okay? This verse gives heartburn to modern chronologists because they say that's impossible. They could not have been contemporaries at that time. So they either posit, again, this two Nehemiah, to Ezra scenario, or they just say, well, the chronologist wasn't trying to give you a time frame. He's compressing 100 years of history as if it looks like one. Read the commentaries on that verse, and I think that'll be an eye-opener on how bad the chronology is. They've got to twist the scripture uh, to make it fit. And uh, it's interesting how even the secular secular references fit beautifully on the biblical chronology. The Elephantine Papyri has a letter from the brother of uh, Nehemiah uh, to uh, the, the priest, uh, And the priest's name is in here in Israel. And some of the names of these are listed as contemporaries living during the reign of Darius. I mean, it fits beautifully together. Anyway, I'm not going to go into the details, but there was a strategic alliance between Ezra, Nehemiah, and Mordecai to do everything in their power to advance the kingdom of God, to advance the cause of, uh, of Israel. All three men were in the land right from the beginning. All three men had to return. Ezra returned to get more uh, exiles. Uh, Nehemiah actually makes uh, three or four trips, as I mentioned. He has to get permission each time. And Mordecai stays in the land of Persia. But here's the point. Wherever their situations in life were, they sought the welfare of Israel. And I think this is a good lesson for us. We don't need to duplicate what other people are doing. We need to ask, Lord, what have you placed me here for? What have you crafted me for? How can I, in my unique way, contribute to the advancement of your kingdom? That's what we need to ask. Some people have said that all Israelites were supposed to return to Israel, but that is not the case. Ezra 1, verse 5 says that God only stirred up the hearts of some to move. It says, all whose spirits God had moved, Others help financially in the same chapter it says whoever is left in any place where he dwells let the men of his place help him with silver and gold with goods and livestock besides the free will offerings for the house of God which is in Jerusalem and so everyone had to take an interest in Jerusalem and they had to have a stake in it but some had a stake by going to Israel and helping others by staying and helping but everybody helped now Sometime in the first few years of Mordecai's stay in Jerusalem, perhaps after he had been there for four or five years, his uncle dies and he takes the charge of Esther. And I think this is a role that we can take on in our lives as well. This was called the role of the gaol. Sometimes it's a, a kinsman redeemer, sometimes avenger of blood. It's a, it's a prominent, more wealthy member of the family who helps others out. And I think that that role continues in the New Testament It's not just our own immediate nuclear families that we are called to help in 1st Timothy 5 verse 8 He says but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household He is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever Now his own would be his distant relatives and especially his own His household would be his nuclear family or maybe including grandparents those who were living with him but he's saying there we need to Where we have a station in life, we do need to take care of our relatives if we are able. And that's one of the reasons why Kathy and I have had two of my brothers and a couple of her siblings. Uh, Our names are on their wills so that if they die, we can take care of their children. I, I think the role of adoption is a marvelous, marvelous role that manifests the grace of God. Now, for some reason that we're not told in Scripture, Mordecai has to return to Persia to serve the king. And various hypotheses have been advanced one that James Jordan gives is that both Mordecai and Nehemiah went back to Persia when Israel was being given false accusations by all of these Surrounding nations and they went there to defend Israel before the king And it's it's a very plausible in terms of the framework very plausible interpretation. We're simply not told but God has mordecai for whatever reason he has to return to persia he has him exactly where he wants him in chapter 2 and everybody in the court knows about uh about esther's beauty and uh so it's kind of a setup uh uh, tradition tells us that jewish tradition that uh, he sought to hide her and was unsuccessful in that verse 10 of uh, chapter 2 says, uh, Esther had not revealed her people or family for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. We're not told why, but it does seem it's fear. He's very nervous. Verse 11 every day, Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. In verses 19 through 21, we see Mordecai being a patriot of Persia. And I think it's possible, like Daniel, to be a patriot of a country that is pagan. We can be patriots in America. People can be patriots in other countries, including Iraq. Okay? I think it is perfectly legitimate. We must never treat the country in the place of God. Daniel had to passively resist a a pagan uh, country at some point. But I think it is perfectly legitimate to be uh, serving pagans. Um, I have uh, known at least a couple of Christians who have faithfully and uncompromisingly served Democratic administrations and Republican administrations. And I think it's possible to do that. Daniel shows you how. Now, perhaps because of the influence of Mordecai and Nehemiah, um, Darius makes a decree in the second year of his reign, that would be four years before this chapter, um, to allow the building of the temple and to protect Jews from reprisal from their neighbors it was incredible decree so they planted their feet on political turf and they're used by God again nothing wrong with being patriots I'm not going to finish the story of uh, Mordecai because uh, we're going to be looking at it in detail in, in later sermons but hints of his character they could be seen everywhere chapter 3 shows him as a man of principle who is not willing to compromise God's Word even if it means his death even though all of Congress is trying to talk him out of doing what he is doing. Chapter four shows how he uses connections. He has connections, he uses those connections, and you know what? Uh, God may have put you guys in positions of influence for such a time as this, you know, for the provision of a job or provision of whatever. God, you need to think, why has God placed me where I'm at, in the house that I have, in the job that I have? He knows how to use connections. Chapter six, we see a man of humility. Here is the greatest honor that could be conferred upon a man by this king, and what does Mordecai do? As soon as he's off of his horse ride and, and uh, Haman announcing before him this is the way the king wants to honor him, what does he do? He gets off his horse, he goes right back to work. It's almost like it's no big deal. Total contrast with Haman, who loves to gloat over his position, who brags about it, talks about it to everyone else. To me, it shows his humility. Chapter 8, we see a man who is flexible. He's, he's got leadership principles and, and abilities that God has given. Chapters 8 through 10, we see a man who does not use his position for personal gain. In fact, he risks getting the king upset with him. He keeps pressing and Esther keeps pressing until Darius gives something that will benefit all the Jews. They're out of harm's way now. They could have just selfishly said, well, let's not worry about it. They risked their own safety in order to preserve the safety of God's people as a whole. whole. And it says that he spoke words of shalom and truth to the people. An ancient rabbinic tradition is that Psalms 113 through 118 were the words of peace and truth and of encouragement that he gave uh, to the people throughout the empire. And as we go through this series, we're going to be singing different parts of Psalm 113 through uh, 118, we're going to sing that now, but I just hope that this this uh, uh, unduly long, perhaps, biography of Mordecai has stirred up your heart to want to be men, women, and children who seek first the kingdom of God, whose lives are committed to burning out for the Lord. I think the last uh, verse there is a wonderful conclusion to his life. For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people, and speaking peace to all his countrymen. And I hope that's a testimony that can be made of this church. And we're not just concerned about ourselves, but that we are seeking the best of the church as a whole. We want their reconstruction. We want their their reformation. We want to speak not just peace to the church, but truth into the life of the church. And I think to the degree that our church succeeds in extending God's kingdom worldwide to that degree, we are going to be prospered and we will be blessed. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and even the controversies that come up over it. It helps us, Father, to evaluate in our own lives how we ought to uh, relate to each other. And I just pray that as we consider uh, over the coming weeks the life of Esther and of Mordecai, that in many different ways, our lives would be challenged to conform to uh, the principles of your word. Help us to delight in you and your providence and your total control over everything in life. We do, Father, rejoice in you, and we love you. And we want to sing these praises now to you, uh, praises that uh, were written during the post-exilic period. We just uh, love, Father, the things that you have done during that time, and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.